Evening everyone, uh, fantastic to be here and it's been a wonderful joyful night um, already but as it is so often the case, uh, in the midst of joy there's, there's often sadness so I've got some sad news this evening. Uh, some of you will know the Alcorn family. Uh, this week uh, Lisa who goes to our morning services uh, lost a long battle with cancer and died uh, but she knows the Lord and so she is with the Lord. She's in glory with him now, uh, which is wonderful, a wonderful comfort. Uh, but please do be in prayer for the family, for her husband Steve, uh, for their children, um, Heather, Shannon, Jessica, Adam. Uh, please be praying for them in their grief and praying that they would have a, a growing and rich hope uh, that their mother is with the Lord uh, in eternity. And uh, they'd like to invite you, Steve would like to invite all of us along to the funeral, which is not this Tuesday, but the coming Tuesday, um, up in the hall uh, Tuesday the 16th um, at 12pm, so I uh, invite you along to that. Uh, but let's pray for them now, let's pray for ourselves now. Oh Father, we do pray for Steve and Heather and Shannon, Jessica, Adam. Uh, Father, please comfort them in their distress. And we do ask, Lord, that you would grow in them a rich and deep hope of eternal life. Uh, thank you, Father, so much that Jesus is the death of death for those who will trust him, that he will take us to glory if he is our Lord and Saviour. Uh, Father, we thank you uh, that this evening we can be gathered together around your word and hear of things that matter so much. And we ask, Lord, as we hear, as we engage with your word, as we continue to do that, you would give us humble hearts. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Megan and I know a family who over the last couple of years has, or last number of years actually, has suffered immensely. Now, everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. Uh, if you're younger, you may not have suffered as much, but, but I dare say the young are suffering a lot uh, in these current days. Suffering is universal. I think if I sat with you for long enough and you trusted me enough, you'd share some of the pains in your life, the sufferings, emotional pain, physical pain, mental pain, relational pain. Suffering is part of our lives on this earth. But this family, this family, seemed to suffer so much more than most. The mother got cancer, bad internal cancer. Subsequent operations, radiation therapy, did irreparable damage to many of her organs. And so there's ongoing daily pain, discomfort, embarrassment, she had the cancer reoccur, had to have more operations, more chemo, more organ complications, organs failing, all sorts of terrible things. Her husband, during COVID, his job was taken out. And so financial stress is added to this uh, suffering of cancer. And then he's diagnosed with cancer, a different cancer. Significant treatment, he's now in remission. Now, you can imagine the kids, can't you, through all of this, dealing with this emotional impact and the sort of mental health struggle that's going on for them. And then we learned, before all this, they'd had twins who died in childbirth. Now, when I think about a family like that, the suffering that this couple have endured, I can't help but think about the very nature of suffering. Why is it that we suffer? And why is it that some people seem to suffer so much more than others, disproportionately more than others? See, what's your answer to that? Why do we suffer? And why do some people suffer so much worse than others? I think we want answers to these questions, don't we? Now, society has some answers floating around. I think people often push suffering away because they don't really want to think about it. But I still think there's ideas floating around, bubbling around, often mixed ideas in people's minds, even if those ideas are incoherent. So there's the view floating around that there is no God. And so there's no reason for suffering. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. Suffering just is. It's random chance. Don't try to understand it. It just happens. It sucks. 
just get along with life. There, for some, is the idea that suffering uh, is more spiritual or there's a superstitious dimension. Something in the spiritual realm is causing suffering and so we need to ward away suffering and do nothing that will bring on suffering. For some people, all of suffering comes from power dynamics in society. It's the powerful oppressing the powerless, which explains some things. But I don't think cancer or the person who gets eaten by a shark while they're surfing. But the big one that I want to focus on is karma. Why is it that we suffer? Well, the classic religions of Buddhism and Hinduism have at their central core, karma is the reason we suffer, because every religion is struggling with this issue. Every religion seeks to have some sort of explanation of why is it that humans beings suffer. And if you're a Hindu, take Hinduism for example, suffering is totally explained by karma. That is the view that says, when you suffer, you are getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve for what you've done either in this life or in a past life because they believe in reincarnation. The wrong you have done will come back to you in the form of suffering and the good you have done comes back to you in the form of a better life. So, someone gets cancer. If you believe in karma, you believe they are getting what they deserve. If a child is born with a serious disability, it is because that child has done wrong in a previous life and so is now getting what they deserve in this life. Now, it's a powerful explanation because it's complete. All of life, all of suffering is explained by karma, but the only hope for the future is that we live a better and better life, which is quite depressing, and it's pretty much incompatible with having compassion for people who suffer because they're just getting what they deserve. Now, in Australia, I don't think we hold to karma quite like that, do we? To say a child with a serious disability is that way because of the wrong they have done in their past life? Oh, I, I, I don't think we can come at that. That sounds really bad. That is really bad. But I do think swirling around in many people's subconscious thought is the idea people generally get what they deserve in this life. Or at least some people, the universe gives back to them what they deserve. Now, you hear it in small and frivolous circumstances. There's a guy walking along with his dog and the dog does a big poo and he's angry because he has to pick it up in his hand with the bag, you know, and, and so he's angry, he yanks the dog lead, he kicks the dog, but in doing so, he trips over, sprains his ankle, falls in the poo. And someone watching goes, <laughs> karma. <laughs> but you also hear it spoken of in more serious ways. Sexual predator, done unspeakable things, locked in jail, but then you hear they've got inoperable cancer. And people say, karma, justice, justice in this life for the terrible things they have done, they're getting what they deserve. When it comes to the question of why people suffer, these sort of things are floating around and often an incoherent mix. Suffering just is, it's random. But don't do that, you'll get bad luck and might suffer. But I can see why they're suffering. They're not a nice person. What about Job's friends? What reason for suffering is given by Job's friends, his comforters, in these chapters? Well, over the last two weeks, we've seen Job has suffered incredibly, immensely. I cannot imagine going through what Job has, has gone through. He's suffering so much to the point where he wishes he had never been born. He wishes that he could die. He's in such pain and emotional turmoil. Then his friends, his comforters, come alongside him and they just sit with him. Seven days, seven nights, just being there not saying anything, wonderful acts of love in his incredible sorrow. But now they speak, 
And chapters 4 to chapter 27, you get a dialogue, a conversation between Job and his three friends. And it has three rounds. It goes, Eliphaz, he speaks, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. Round one. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. Zophar, Job. Round two. Eliphaz, Job. Bildad, Job. And Zophar misses out. Who knows why? But there's a lot of speaking. A lot of conversation going on. And it's all around why Job is suffering. And the big reason that Job's friends give for, for why he's suffering clearly articulated in chapter 4, verse 7. Open up there, come back with me there. Job chapter 4, verse 7. Verse 7. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The friends answer to why Job suffers. Job, you're getting what you deserve. The innocent and the upright are never destroyed. But those who sow evil and trouble reap evil and trouble. You reap what you sow because, verse 9, at the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. God is just. God is angry with evil. And so, in this life, he will punish evil. That's their answer to why people suffer. When I suffer, it is my punishment from God for my sin. Now, that's very similar to karma, isn't it? Very different because there is a personal God who is dispensing justice, who is punishing people in this life for their unrighteousness. Quite different but very similar because it's in this life people get what they deserve for how they've lived. The wicked suffer, the righteous prosper. And this thinking is right through everything Job's friends say. Come with me to chapter 8. It's absolutely core to their thinking. And this one I reckon will take your breath away because this one is about Job's children. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuhite, replied, How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Bildad says to Job, when the house collapsed and all your kids died, it was because they were being punished for their sin. That's heavy. Job's friends are utterly, absolutely committed to this theology. But verse 5... But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. But if you turn back to God and, and repent and plead for God, God will, because you are now being pure and upright, return you to prosperity. In fact, he will make you more prosperous than even before. Sin and you suffer, but turn from sin and you'll prosper again. And it's all the way through the speeches of Job's comforters. Let's look at one more example. Chapter 20, verse 4. Listen to how Zophar talks about the life of the wicked. Chapter 20, verse 4. Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed in the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. 
Though the pride of the godless reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream, he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will not see him again. His place will look on him no more. His children must make amends to the poor. His own hands must give back his wealth. The youthful vigour that fills his bones will lie with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, though he cannot bear to let it go and lets it linger in his mouth, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them, and so forth. It goes on and on. The wicked will cop it. It might seem like they get ahead. It might seem like they're prospering for a short time. But Zophar says, in the end, in this life, they won't prosper long. Their wickedness will catch up for them and they will be brought low. It's the foundation of their system of thought when it comes to suffering. Do you see? In their thinking, there is a direct line between my sin and my suffering. If it were an equation, there'd be an equal sign in the middle. My sin in this life equals my suffering in this life. When I suffer... It's because I have sinned. And those who suffer more, suffer more because they've sinned more. Now, I think that sounds like a lot of popular Christianity, don't you? You live a godly life of faith and you will prosper in this life. You live an ungodly, faithless life and you will suffer in this life. And if you're suffering and you pray to God to take away the suffering, but he doesn't take away the suffering, then it's because you haven't had enough faith or you haven't truly repented. I think lots of popular Christianity is aligned with the thinking of Job's friends, his comforters. Have you come across it? I have. I've spoken to many, many Christians who when they got sick, they were told by their Christian friends who were told by their pastor, you are sick because of your lack of faith, because of your ungodly life. And when they prayed and God didn't immediately heal them, they were told that's because of your lack of faith, because your repentance is not real repentance. So are they right? Are Job's friends right? Well, there are three major things that tell us whether their view is right or not. And it's the start, the end, and what Jesus has to say. The start of the book of Job, the end of the book of Job, and the words of Jesus. So the start. The first two chapters of Job, which we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, tell you exactly why Job is suffering. The first two chapters let the reader into the heavenly court and see the Satan come before God and accuse God to say that Job only loves you because you are making him prosperous. And so God permits the Satan to take everything from Job, to make him suffer immensely, in order to show that God is the one worthy of all honour, all love, even if we get nothing from him, even if we don't prosper. It's absolutely clear from the opening two chapters that Job is a righteous and upright man. Now, not sinless. There's no one sinless. He sins like everyone, but he's God-fearing. He's seeking to do what the Lord wants him to do, not just in action, but in heart. And when he sins, he makes sacrifice for sin. This is, this is an upright and righteous man. And the first two chapters make it very clear he is not suffering as a result of his sin. God has bigger purposes in the suffering of Job, his own glory. Now, we know all about this because we've read the first two chapters of the book of Job. God has revealed to us this through the writing of the book of Job. But Job the man knows nothing about any of this. 
Nothing about the heavenly courtroom and the interaction between the Satan and God. He knows nothing about why he's suffering and neither do Job's friends. We know more than the people to whom these things are happening. We having the book of Job and knowing the first two chapters know more than the comforters know more than Job. So it's like when you watch a movie and in the movie, imagine a serial killer detective type movie, in the movie there's a scene where suddenly the serial killer is revealed. He's revealed to you as you're watching the movie, but the main character, the detective, isn't there. Now, how does that shape the whole way you watch the rest of the movie? Well, when the serial killer rings up the detective and says, come over to my place, it's urgent, and the detective willingly, unwittingly rushes over to the serial killer's house, aren't you screaming, don't go, at least in your mind, don't go, he's the serial killer. When the serial killer says, come with me, come down into my basement. <laughs> You're thinking, don't go into the basement. Never go into the basement. We have way less murders in Australia because we don't have basements. <laughs> don't go. He's the serial killer. When the serial killer says, look at this interesting thing over here so that you turn your back on me and the main detective turns his back away from the serial killer, you're crying out, no, he's going to kill you. Turn around. We know more than the main character in the movie. Same with the book of Job. All the time that Job's comforters are speaking about why Job suffers, the start of the book should cause us to go, don't listen to them, Job. That's not the reason you're suffering. We know why you're suffering even if you don't know why you're suffering and it's not because you've been unrighteous. It's not because you're being punished. It's because God is permitting you to suffer in order to bring himself glory by showing that he is worthy of all honour and praise, even if he gives us no prosperity. The star tells us the truth, so that as we read the speeches of Job's friends, we should be thinking things like, oh, that's not right, Job's friend. That's not right. That's not right. Or, oh, there's something true about what you said there, Job's friend, but it's not the whole truth. It's a very limited truth. Or, that principle you've articulated there, Job's friend, is correct. But it can't be applied to Job. It's not true in this particular circumstance. The star tells us that Job's friends are wrong. The end. Come with me to the very last chapter of the book of Job, Job 42. And we'll spend more time here in a future week. Job 42, verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job... He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as your servant Job has done. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have, spoken, you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has done. And so they do that. They go, they make sacrifice, Job prays for them, and the Lord wonderfully forgives them. But do you see verse 7? I am angry with you, God says to his friends. Why? Because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has done. They're wrong. Verse 8 says they've been foolish. That is, they've not understood reality correctly, reality according to God. Foolish, not wise. But more than that, the Lord says they have not spoken the truth about him. Now, how have they not spoken the truth about him? Because they've said many things about God and the world that are true. They recognise that God is the Lord, he is the ruler, he is in control of all things, including suffering. 
They recognise that God is just, perfectly just, and cannot um, pervert justice. They recognise that there is some connection between sin and suffering and that generally in the world, yes, if you're wicked, it goes badly for you and if you're righteous, it generally goes well for you. They recognise that the Lord can bring suffering to discipline his children. They say many true things about God and life in their speeches, even if they simplify things or apply them badly that make them ultimately unhelpful. In what way have they not spoken the truth about God? Well, I think the key is this. They will not let God be God when it comes to suffering. They will not let God be free when it comes to suffering. Now, we're going to come back to this. But the end of the book of Job tells us that his friends are wrong. And so does Jesus. Jump with me to the New Testament, to the passage Alex read for us, Luke 13. Luke 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So Jesus is there, he's been talking to the crowds about the coming judgment of God and how it is urgent that they repent. And some of the people listening then come and tell Jesus about a disaster that's taken place. Now, it's hard to know why, but you could imagine they've heard Jesus talking about the coming judgment, how they need to repent, and they want to refocus Jesus' attention on people they think are particularly bad, people they think are worse than them. So they tell Jesus about a disaster. Some people who've travelled up from Galilee, they're in the temple, they're making sacrifices to God, and while they're in the temple, for reasons we don't know, the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, has sent soldiers in and the soldiers have killed them, mixed their blood with the blood of the animal sacrifices in the temple. And it seems from Jesus' response that the people who are telling the story are thinking just like Job's friends. They're thinking, these Galileans must have been really bad. These Galileans must have been real sinners for God to punish them by sending Pilate's soldiers in to kill them like that. In their view, like Job's friends, if you're suffering, it's a direct result of your sin. It's a bit like um, John 9, do you remember the man born blind? The assumption is, whose fault is it that this man was born blind? Was it his or was it his parents? If he's suffering blindness, it must be his sin or his parents' sin. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 2. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or the 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus' answer is no. There's not always this direct relationship between my sin in this life and my suffering in this life. God's universe is far more complex. God is far more complex and transcendent, and so there's mystery. Now, there can sometimes be a direct relationship between a person's sin and a person's suffering. There's a few places in the New Testament where we see it happen. 1 Corinthians 11 is an example. Uh, the Corinthian church, some members were treating other members very badly, and the result was... Some are getting sick, some had even died. It is possible that in this life, God can punish people for their sin. But it's not the norm, and we definitely shouldn't make it the rule. Generally, my personal sin does not cause my personal suffering in this life. Jesus says, no, 
God's universe is more complex than that. God's ways are more complex than that. And so the book of Job teaches us, if you are someone who whenever you suffer gets this real fear in your heart immediately, God is judging me for my sin. Then can I ask you, let the book of Job and let the words of Jesus free you, liberate you from this burden. But do you notice Jesus adds something? Verse 3, verse 5. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And the perishing I think he's talking about is the ultimate perishing, God's judgment that cuts off sinners from himself. In the most immediate context to the nation of Israel, who are not repenting and receiving Jesus as Messiah, and so the nation will be cut off, both in this life but eternally. And so I think it also applies to us. Unless you too repent, you will perish eternally, hell. According to Jesus, suffering and tragedy in this world are crying out to us, repent, turn back to God. Every time you see an accident, every time you see a death, every time you see a tragedy or suffering, don't think, ah, worse sinner. Think, repent, Graham. Repent, Graham. The world is broken and I am part of the brokenness. Even as Christians, repent and the Lord forgives graciously. I think the logic is when you see tragedy and suffering in the world, it reminds you of your frailty and the death that's coming quickly, but it also reminds you that we are guilty. The world is as it is because humanity has turned its back and rebelled against God. And so God in his judgment has brought death and suffering into our world. And so when you see that suffering and death, it should remind you, yes, I'm a rebel. We've all been rebels. Please forgive me, God. Repent and turn back. So Jesus says, when you see suffering, don't think worse. You know, when you see suffering, say to yourself, repent. There was C.S. Lewis, a guy who wrote uh, The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe um, and all the Chronicles of Narnia. He said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pains. Suffering is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In suffering, God in his mercy is crying out to us, repent before it's too late. Now, I want to ask one more big question. And I think as we answer this big question, it's going to help us apply it. And the big question is this. Why did Job's friends get it wrong? Because they're a warning to us, aren't they? These are men who are serious about God. They're serious about God's truth, just like we want to be. Surely the ways that they get it wrong are a warning to us. So... Why did Job's friends get it wrong? And I think there's two key pieces. But both of these pieces have at their heart a lack of humility. Piece one, they're not humble enough to let God be God. They're not humble enough to let God be free. See, they have a theological system. They have a mental map of reality, of God, of the universe, of suffering and how things work, which is a good thing. We all need a theological system. We all need a mental map. It's hard to navigate through life if you don't have some sort of mental map. But they've constructed their system of thought about God and suffering in such a way that they will not let God be God. Their system, my sin in this life equals my suffering in this life. The righteous will always prosper and the wicked will always suffer in this life. All suffering, all suffering is explained by this. For them, there is no mystery at all in suffering. And God cannot do anything but cause the righteous to prosper and the wicked to suffer in this life. God must adhere to my system. 
my mental map for the friends. And it's a safe system because it largely operates on the horizontal. It's about how humans live. If I live well, if I live righteously, then I'm prosperous. If I live badly, then I'll suffer. But I can in some measure control it so I can live righteously and prosper. It's safe because I have some measure of control in it. But we know from chapters 1 and 2, there's suffering that comes on Job not because of his sin. God has greater purpose in his suffering than he knows about. From Job's perspective, there's mystery in why he suffers. He doesn't know why he suffers. Even at the end of the book, he never finds out why he suffers. Because God is free to do as he chooses with his world in regard to all things and and with regard to suffering. Because he is God, the Lord Almighty, does as he pleases. That's more frightening, isn't it? Because that's not just on the horizontal, that's from the vertical down. That's, that's a God who is above us, who is over us. And he is the God who's free to do as he wishes. And so I have very little control over whether I suffer or not. Only God does, because he is God. As, as you watch the speeches of Job's friends as they move through the chapters, there's, there's an intensification, there's a doubling down, there's an anger building as they move through, I think. By the time you get to chapter 22, we won't go there, Eliphaz... Um, condemns Job for things that Job has not done. He's either blatantly made them up or he's seen little sins in Job's life and he's, he's magnified them, he's blown them up out of all proportion to the point where he's charging Job with crimes Job has never committed. Now, why is he doing that? I think it's because his system of thought is increasingly threatened. Job's situation and the things Job say are unthinkable and threatening to him. And so he launches increasingly brutal attacks on Job. They double down. But isn't the key thing that we learn from the book of Job that God is transcendent beyond our understanding? That with him is mystery. We don't know all things. And so there will always remain a mysterious element to suffering that we experience in our lives. And so the only proper response to the awesome transcendent God as creatures is to trust him. Even if we never learn, we never know the reasons for which we're suffering. Job is never told. Job is never privy to the divine counsel. Here's the application for us. Humbly let God be God in all things, but particularly when it comes to suffering. He's God. I'm not. He determines how suffering is apportioned in this world, and we have no control over it. And there's so much mystery. There's a lot we do know about suffering because the Lord has revealed it, but there's also much we don't know. And so the right response is to trust the good God to be the good God. And if our system of thought, our mental map, stops God from being God with regard to suffering or anything, it's wrong. If our mental map stops the Lord Almighty from being free to do as he chooses, then it's wrong. If our system of thought constrains God and makes it so he must act in a certain way, unless he's promised it, Because if he's promised it, he will do it because he's always faithful to his promises. But if he hasn't, if our system constrains God and makes it so he must act in a certain way, even if he hasn't promised it, then our system is wrong. Now, in a sense, this is a frightening thing because we realize I I have no control over whether I suffer. And God is in absolute control and can do what he thinks is best. But there's great comfort in it because he is good. This is the God who gave his own son to suffer more than any of us could ever possibly imagine, to suffer for us, to suffer for us so he could take us to an eternity where there will be no more suffering forever and ever and ever. 
And this is the good God who is in control and so can do what is right with regard to suffering. And this is the good God who's made the promise of Romans 8, 28 and 29, which says, all things in your life, every single circumstance, including the circumstances of great suffering that you experience, are from the hand of your heavenly Father. He has brought them to you for your good. And the good, if you are one of his people, a Christian, the good that he's bringing to you is he's making you like Jesus and taking you to glory. Will you humbly let God be God when it comes to suffering? Trust his promises. Know there's mystery. But ultimately, God be God and do whatever he will and trust that he is good in it all. And whenever you see suffering, don't think you were a sinner over there. Repent and come again under the rule of God. Why do friends get it, Job's friends get it wrong? Piece one, I think they're not humble enough to let God be God. Piece two, they're not humble enough to question their system of theological thought. As we've said, they have a system, a mental map of reality, of life, of God, of suffering. And that's a good thing to have a system. We all need one if you're going to navigate life and reality well. They have a mental map, a theological system of thought. But as we've seen, the problem with their system is it's simplistic. It's limited and so ultimately largely wrong. But the big thing, the big thing that I notice through it all is, it seems at no point through the whole thing do they ever think, maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I don't know it all. Maybe there's pieces that are missing. Even though they know Job, they know his righteous life, even through all the conversations with Job, at no point do they seem to think, maybe my theological system is wrong or has some pieces missing. Their system is locked, rigid, not open to adjustment. It doesn't matter what extra information or data comes their way, it will not shift their system because in their pride, they resist change to their system. And more, they, they try to take every truth and every experience and squash it through their system. So rather than humbly wonder whether there might be more to Job's suffering than they know about, they take Job's suffering and they try to squeeze it through their system. It's a bit like um, a bloke who's, who's working on a house. I don't know if this actually happens, but they've taken out a beam. I don't know much about building. They've taken out a beam um, that's rotting and they've got to replace the beam, but they didn't want to dismantle everything, so they're just trying to... You know, push it through the house again and then nail it all down. Is there something right in that? Anyway. But the beam that they've got, it, it, it's, it's supposed to be perfectly square, but instead it's, it's, it's sort of rectangular in shape. And so the bloke's like with a mallet trying to hammer this beam through a hole that's not the right size. And a friend comes up and says, hey, 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 hey I don't think that's going to fit. Oh, it'll fit. It'll fit. Boom. Boom. Hey, dude, it's not going to fit. The, the, the beam you're trying to hammer in is the wrong size for the hole. It'll fit. It'll fit. You know, and they just double down on it. That's Job's friends. Everything must fit through my system. And when they're questioned, threatened about it, they get angry about it. Now, in future weeks, we'll hear more about how they've formed their mental map and why it's a problem. And how, among other things, they've taken an observation about that's generally true in the world and made it an ironclad rule. But I think the big thing to notice this week is at no point do they seem humble enough to question whether I might be wrong. My theological thoughts might be wrong or limited until God says repent. And they repent and are forgiven. And this is the other big application for us, to humbly question our systems of theological thought. And I reckon the mental map image is a very, very helpful one. Imagine you're an explorer 
you come to an unexplored country and, and you want to get a better and better picture of a country and draw a map of the country so that you and other people can travel around the country freely and safely in the future. So you start drawing the map. And there's things about the country you know with certainty. Details that you know with certainty. Because you've been there, you've seen it, you've gone to that forest, you've measured it, you know how big it is, the shape it is, where it is, and so you're absolutely certain about that. But there are bits on the map you're fairly certain about. You've collected a lot of information, you, you, you know, you're 95% sure, but 5% not. Uh, there's that river, I know it's there, I'm pretty sure it's this shape. It starts there, ends there. There are bits on the map that, um, you, you know, that region, I don't really know much about it at all. I've got a hunch. I've, I've got um, a few thoughts about it, but I don't really know. And then there are bits you have no idea about in the country. And so how might you represent the country on your map that you're making? Well, the bits that you're certain about, you might ink in, in pen. The bits you're pretty certain, pretty sure about, you'll pencil in. The bits that you just have a hunch or speculations about, you just sketch really lightly in pencil in. And then there's bits you just don't know about and you leave them blank on the map because that's an honest map of the country according to what you know. When it comes to reality, God, his universe, how things are, we are to be mental map makers. But the way we're to make our mental map is according to God's revelation, his word to us. He's given us his great word, so the more we understand it, we create a, a correct system of thought about life and suffering and God and the universe. Our system of thought aligned to God's word, so we think God's way about everything. But God hasn't revealed everything to us. And so there'll be some bits that are absolutely crystal clear. They're said often with such clarity and with such detail that we are absolutely certain about them. So we ink those things into our mental map. They will not shift. We'll go to the death for those things, the gospel. And there are some things that we're reasonably certain about. There's quite a bit said about them. There's quite a lot of clarity. But on some of the detail, you know, I'm, just, I'm not 100%. And so in our mental map, we pencil those things in. I'm pretty certain. I'd argue strongly for them. It would take a lot to be persuaded. People would have to persuade me from the Bible. Then there are some things that are just fuzzy. We have a hunch about, speculations about, very little said about them though, so I'm far less certain. And so in my mental map, we lightly sketch those in pencil. I'd be far more easily persuaded on those things if someone came thinking differently and they could show me from the Bible. And then there are some things that are just hidden. God's not told us. They're a mystery to us. He's God and we're not. And so in our mental map, we leave them blank and don't presume to make something up. For example, with suffering. The Bible says a lot about suffering. It gives us everything we need to know about suffering. But it doesn't tell us everything about suffering. There's a lot we're never told. Why we suffer different things in certain circumstances, why some people suffer for more than others. We just don't know all the whys. And God has far more complex reasons behind things than we can imagine. Only God knows. And so we shouldn't pretend and start to fill in sections of the map that should be blank, but let God be God. Now this all takes humility, doesn't it? To not presume that I know more than God has revealed in his word. And to hold with the, the appropriate tightness aligned to how certainly the Lord has revealed things in his word. The clear, crystal truths of the gospel we hold with an iron fist. Things that we're quite a lot of clarity, we're pretty certain about, we hold pretty tightly. 
Things which we just have a hunch and speculation on, we hold pretty loosely. And there are some things that are just a mystery to us. Only God knows we trust the Almighty with those things and don't presume to make them up. And so we keep humbly allowing our God through his word to challenge, to reshape our convictions and our thoughts, even deeply held convictions, week by week, to listen to each other as our views are challenged, but to get people to show us from God's word because we want our mental map to keep being sharpened, to keep being sharpened, but it all takes humility. Now, can I say, it's often young men who find this hard. I can say that as an older man. You get excited about the Bible. You're growing in knowledge of the Bible. And there's often a tendency in the young, particularly young men, to think, I know everything. I remember those days. I used to know everything. (laughs) And so it's possible for young men, not saying any of you, possible for young men to become a bit arrogant, rigid, without nuance when it comes to the Word of God, harsh in the way they speak to others about the Word of God. Um, There's something normal about this. It's just part of growing through this stage. And and most young men, if you work on it, will grow very healthily through that. But I have noticed that there are young men who grow into the bodies of older men but actually never grow to be older men. They're young men in old men's bodies. And their system hardens and they're unwilling to ever change. Uh, It doesn't matter what people say. Um, they, they, they won't shift no matter what data or information comes their way and they grow angry and protective about their system and they fight for peripheral things as if they were the central things and they try to force every bit of the Bible through their system of thought, through their mental map. It fits, you know, it fits. Now that's a worry when that happens. Or when the Bible is opened, every growth group, you know, they ride into town on their theological hobby horse because they've got that one thing they just want to talk about all the time. Now, if that's the gospel in Jesus, that's okay. But otherwise? So if someone brings a challenge to your theological system and you find yourself, I'm getting emotionally upset. I'm getting angry. I'm getting worked up. I'm internal. Try to work out what's going on for you because it could be really good. You love the clear, certain truths of the gospel that the Lord has revealed to you and you can't stand to see them maligned or misunderstood. Or it could be because you have a rigid theological system that keeps you safe and keeps you in control, and you don't want anyone to threaten it, not even God in his word. Humility is the key. Humility to let God be God when it comes to everything, including our suffering. And humility to let God's word shape our system of thought in all things. We're going to take a moment now just to reflect on these things, maybe to pray, maybe to repent. Maybe to think about how you respond, create your mental map, how you respond to God's word, whether you let God be God. As you do that, the band is going to come up, then we're going to pray together and then sing. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, please give us great humility. Humility that lets you be free when it comes to suffering, when it comes to all things. And humility to let your word shape our thinking in all things. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.